Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, Brian Cartarella shared online some recent PRs and progress on LiveView Native. That's really cool because LiveView Native is an effort that Dockyard has been pushing forward. And it was teased at the Elixir Conf. Is actually more than teased. Like there was a demo that you could actually use and interact with. But I wanted to give a little update on some of the things that have been happening recently. So one of them is there's a new LiveView native Swift UI color picker. So as they're going through this process, they're having to implement LiveView support for existing Swift UI components. And we just want to talk about some of those. And we'll have links to these in the show notes. So you can check out the PR because what's really great about the PRs is they are making an effort to include templates like videos or screenshots so you understand what it is that they're talking about as they add these. So the first one is a Swift UI color picker, which it's pretty cool. Like, you know, click and change the color and it changes like as you would expect. But this is just part of that progress of building support for all these native components and widgets that are in Swift UI. They also added a control group. In web terms, you can think of this as any group of inputs that kind of go together like checkboxes or a, a radio button. But in iOS, terms is just a control group. You can put whatever you want in there. The video that they have is, is you know, this horizontal list of, you know, items that are in there. You just select one of the items and it gives you the value out of that. To me, it looks kind of like how you would think of tab groups or something like that. Yeah, that's a good example. Going along with that, they also implemented a picker for those items in that group, right? And this, this is a variety of ways to pick, right? We, so we talked about like that tabbed way of doing it, but then you can also like do the iOS native, you know, like spinner kind of thing where it opens up that other native window. You've probably seen this a lot, you iOS users. So there's a way to tap into that. There's also like a list based view where it'll slide to a new UI where it's just a normal looking list that you can scroll through. It's not that like, I want to call it the, uh, <laughs> the price is right wheel. <laughs> That's how I think of it. It's the price is right, right wheel. You spin it down. Anyway, I'm not an iOS user, as you can tell. <laughs> yeah, they also added two grid components. So one of them looks like, you know, just a typical, like, gives you components for grid, grid rows, dividers, and stuff like that. And then another really interesting one is called a lazy grid, which is if you set up your grids in your in your column, it has this video of them, you know, like growing and shrinking the window and all of the elements inside just kind of adapting to the size of the window. So that's a very responsive grid. I think that was something that they tweeted about that people were talking about was pretty cool. Yeah, and we'll have linked in the show notes back to an earlier GitHub issue that they had shared, which is set up to just track the overall progress of adding support for these different native controls. As of the time of this recording, I checked it this morning, uh, they're 59% the way through their own list, which is really cool just to see that, you know, we talked about it at that one time. There's been little drops here and there, like, oh, we got to see a LiveView native demo running on a Apple Watch simulator. So you know there's stuff happening. And another thing is they've talked about how they do intend to have Android support as well. But right now they're just focusing on the iOS and Swift UI components. So I think it's just exciting to see this is continuing to move forward. It's It really is a serious effort. And this could really be a big game changer for us Elixir devs who want to do something mobile as well. 
All right, next up, speaking of changing games, there's also a live book integration inside of Hugging Face. They're calling this Hugging Face Spaces. So here's a quote from Jose Valim, who's the one that shared this online. So he says, if you wanted to run a neural network with Elixir, such as Stable Diffusion, but you didn't have a GPU handy, we just announced an integration between Livebook and Hugging Face. The short version is Hugging Face has Spaces, which is integrated with Livebook, which gives you access to GPU, which gives you access to a smile on your face. (laughs) And so there's a lot more detail on what all this means. But each hugging face space environment offers up to about 16 gig of RAM and two CPU cores for free. If you've been around the web, you know, you've probably seen these like little buttons that like deploy on Heroku or something like that, right? It's just really easy to get it up there. And that's the kind of experience that they're going for here. So now there can be a button that says deploy on hugging face spaces. So it just gives you really easy turnkey kind of access to getting a live book up with GPU acceleration. That's super nice. How how much easier can it get? Anyway, we got a couple of links because there's several announcements from this ones, you know, from the live book side, but then also, also the hugging face side. So if you are interested in diffusing stables, <laughs> you can go check this out. I do want to call out that there's a blog post on the live book website that goes through some more details. So be sure to check that out. But also in that same post, there is a video that walks you through how to actually get your live book running in a hugging face space. It's a tongue twister, I think. But how to get it up running there and running live book with GPU acceleration, taking advantage of all of that. So like that is really cool. I'm really excited to see what happens with this. I think we should just call it hugging spaces. (laughs) (laughs) So Jose also followed up that announcement with a message saying that we have big news coming soon in relation to Livebook on both Hugging Face and Fly.io, so stay tuned. Jose can just never help himself to leave some kind of cliffhanger. (laughs) (laughs) As longtime listeners will know, I work at Fly.io, so I know that there is an effort towards getting hardware GPU access to machines. I'm not directly involved with that, so I don't have a timeline. But I'm super happy that there is something coming. When something is ready to announce, we will be sure to share that with you. Fly.io. It's a great place to run Elixir apps. With many global regions, a private network that makes it easy to cluster your app, and a powerful CLI, it's something you should really try out. Experience it for yourself at fly.io. And next up, Andrea Leopardi published the last video in his series of Proto Hacker Challenges. This is day eight in Secure Socket Layer, and he's using the library Thousand Island, and we've talked about this before. If you think like ranch, it's like a joke off of salad dressings, but you know, that's that's the way naming libraries goes, I guess. But this uses Thousand Island to do a lot of byte shuffling. So if you like to consume your streaming media by binging a whole season at a time, well, now the season's complete. We've got all the videos up, and now you can watch them all at once in, in a big binge. And so there you go. It's all ready. All right. So something that you can't really binge on yet is getting that full Phoenix 1.7 release, right? They, they're dropping it every so often in release candidates. And so the last one was RC2. Now there's RC3 and RC4 out. And what these include are some bug fixes and some small enhancements. So Phoenix 1.7 is coupled with Phoenix Live View. So last announcement, I think, in Live View was streams. In Phoenix, where the generators are, they are introducing some generators 
that use that new Phoenix Live View feature. So that's pretty cool that you can now like generate an example of how to use Phoenix Live View streams. So that's going to be really cool. They also update the Phoenix Live generators to use phoenix.component to form. So there's some form changes there. And then lastly, there's a bug fix for fixing some race conditions in there. Question for you guys. Do you guys do long poll? You know, it doesn't come out of the box for free. You do have to configure it a little bit. Do you guys ever ever do that? No. So I have not been using long poll. I know it's available. And yes, it is something you have to explicitly say you want to use. Yeah. But I did overhear a little bit that fixing this bug was quite a project that touched a lot of things. And it's been a long-standing bug issue that we didn't even know was there. I think Chris McCord is going to be sharing some more information about his journey on that one. So we'll have something to look forward to. Herman Valesco shared on Twitter a tip about using put-in. So put-in is a way to update nested structures. So you could have like a map with a map inside of it and a map inside of that. And you could just call put-in and you could pass in the path of where you want to update and then what you want to update at that path. But he shared that there's also a put-in with ARD2 that works on structs. So this is something I didn't even know. David pointed out earlier that it does require you knowing it up front. You can't dynamically generate this path when you're using the macro version. But if you do happen to know the path you're going in, this is actually very helpful because if you've tried to do this before, you might have seen the error saying that your struct doesn't implement the access behavior. And that's frustrating because when you want to update things that are nested, it's kind of hard. So Cool tip. Thanks, Herman. Put in Arity2 can help you out here if that's what you're trying to do with structs. Yeah, I, I've also learned that, you know, it's not a big deal to implement the access behavior. Like there's a couple of functions that you put in there, but it's, it's, it's quite easy. You know, most of the time I just wanted to mimic the map behavior. So you, you, you kind of just copy and paste it. That's what I do in Phoenix SEO, actually. It, it, it does implement the access behavior because people tend to want to treat structs like they do maps. And as long as there's nothing strange that you need to do for that struct, it should be straightforward to put access behavior on there. And then at that point, you could do the put in, you know, three arity one and and dynamically use the paths at runtime. Anyway, some good thoughts there. Thanks, Herman, for sharing that quick tip. All right, last up, big news for Elixir Core. So a person named Halith and community, everyone else that's contributing to this, they didn't give up and they worked to close a three and a half year old issue on the Elixir GitHub issue tracker. And that issue is about unifying the Erlang and Elixir loggers. If you've ever had to dive into loggers with Elixir, you know that over time that it can get quite complicated when working with the built-in Erlang loggers. There's a lot more functions available in the Erlang side. So if you're trying to do something, I'll just call it strange. If you're trying to do something strange or, or complex inside of logging behaviors with like Elixir code, you probably have had to dive down into Erlang APIs to go do that. Things can get a little bit weird when that happens. And so three and a half years later of, I'm sure, very grueling work to overhaul things and unify you know, those APIs, now Elixir and Erlang are going to be a little bit more one-to-one on how to do logging stuff, complex logging stuff. So fantastic work from all the community. Big shout out to Halith for driving so much of that work and helping out Elixir and uh, both on Elixir and Erlang side. So we've got a link to the issue so you can learn more about that. And thanks for the hat tip from Andrea Leopardi on bringing that to light. I've definitely noticed the incremental changes of Elixir. It seems like every minor patch of Elixir 
.11.12.13, all that, always has logger improvements. And I'm sure we have Howlith and the rest of the community to thank for that. And so this one is just kind of marking a big swath of that being done for the next minor version of Elixir. Very excited for that. This GitHub issue was opened November 1st, 2019. So it really has been out there for a long time. And if you check out the PR, there's a number of little checkbox items to indicate different parts of the work that's been going on. As a, for instance, one of them is because of the Erlang support for this, bringing this into Elixir, is file handler with log rotation. So like if you're doing logging to a local file and you want to do file rotation so you don't get like 20 gigabyte files or something, you want to rotate and maybe have other rules around that, it has support for that. So that is interesting when you start thinking more about what could I be doing in an embedded space where maybe my logs are staying on device or something like that. So it is really cool. I'd love to learn more about what some of this means and hopefully we can in the future. Ooh, one more thing to say about that. You don't see this every day, but that there's a new package published by Elixirlang <laughs> called Logger Backends. So I won't go into a detail here, but it's not every day you see like, you know, the GitHub org of Elixirlang <laughs> have a new package. And so, so there's some of that logic being pulled out and put into its own package. Interesting to see where that's going to be helpful in the future, but pretty cool. Uh, we'll have a link to it in the show notes. And that's it for the news. Mm -hmm. 